All right, hello everybody. Uh, my name is Gene, if we haven't met, and it's my privilege uh, today to bring us God's Word. So let's pray as we start. Uh, Father God, uh, thank you that we have uh, the Bible, your Word, and that through it we have recorded historically the things that Jesus said and did. Uh, we pray that today we would listen and we would recognize Jesus for who he is, uh, your King. May we trust in him. Amen. Have you ever failed to recognize somebody important? Uh, let me tell you a story. Uh, this was some years ago. There were two hikers from America hiking in Scotland. And they were walking in the area close to Balmoral Castle, which is one of the royal residences. This was during the time when Queen Elizabeth II was still alive. Uh, these two hikers were taking a stroll in this area, and they came across two people, an old lady and a younger man. And being friendly, they decided to tr uh, strike up a conversation with these two people. What they didn't realize was that little old lady was Her Majesty the Queen herself, and they didn't recognize her. And so they were having this friendly chat, and they asked the Queen, oh, uh, so where do you live? And she said, oh, I just live over the hill over there. At this point, the hikers got really excited because they knew the Queen kind of lived nearby. So they said to her, have you met the Queen? And she said, in classic British humor style, no, no, I haven't, but my friend here, he has. And this was, this was her bodyguard. And at this point, the hikers got really excited. And they said, can we take a photo with you to the queen's bodyguard? And so the hikers had a photo with the queen's bodyguard. And the person holding the camera was the queen. And they left that interaction never realizing that they just met the queen of England. And so these two hikers, they completely failed to recognize somebody important, the queen of England. Is that something you've done before? Have you failed to recognize somebody important? In our passage today, we're asked a question. Have we failed to recognize somebody really important? That person is Jesus. Because we see in our passage that Jesus is the king. Not the king of England, but the king of everything and everyone. And the question for us is, have you recognized who Jesus is? See, the hikers, they didn't recognize the Queen of England, and they missed out on meeting the Queen of England. Uh, but if we don't recognize who Jesus is, we miss out on eternal life. Yet if we do recognize Jesus for who he is, as God's suffering king who loves us and died for us, then we can trust that he is on our side. So we've got three points for our talk today. The first is Jesus, the suffering king. The second is the wrong response to Jesus, which is superficial worship. And the third is the right response to Jesus, genuine faith. So let's come together uh, to our first point, starting from verse 1 of Mark 11. So for a bit of context here, uh, Jesus has been making his way to Jerusalem. And along the way, he's been teaching and healing people. And up to this point, Jesus has been pretty discreet. He's actually been traveling quite secretively, and he's been avoiding drawing heaps of attention to himself. But now that he's finally at Jerusalem, he makes a big splash. He stages his entrance into Jerusalem in a way, in a very specific way, that declares who he is. So let's read together from verse 1. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this, say, the Lord needs it and will send it back here shortly. 
they went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Jesus has his disciples fetch a colt, which is a young donkey that nobody's ridden before for him to ride. And notice he's entirely in control of the situation. He tells his disciples exactly what to do and what to say, and it goes exactly as Jesus planned. And so Jesus enters Jerusalem riding on a donkey, saddled with the cloaks of his disciples, his way paved by cloaks and branches laid uh, on the road by the crowd before him. So what's the significance of this? You see, Jesus enters Jerusalem specifically in this way to declare himself as the king. He's making a reference to Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Uh, this is a passage describing the coming of God's king who will restore Jerusalem and save them from their enemies. I'll read out the passage for you. It goes, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. You see, by what he's doing, Jesus is saying, that's me. I am God's king. And the crowd seemed to catch on to this. If you look at verses 9 and 10, those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. The crowds are shouting, Hosanna. Hosanna literally means save us. But it's also an expression of praise. They're praising God because a king like the great King David has come who will save them, just like God promised through prophets like Zechariah. But what kind of king is Jesus? And what is he saving them from exactly? You see, the Israelites, they've not really had a good time. Uh, Since the glory days of King David and his son Solomon, things have pretty much been downhill for them. Uh, The kingdom uh, was split in two. Uh, There was infighting between the two kingdoms. They were being invaded by other countries. Uh, The northern kingdom got annihilated by the Assyrians, and the southern kingdom was overtaken and exiled to Babylon. Uh, Eventually, they returned to the land, and they rebuilt the temple. But by Jesus' time, they were now under Roman rule and oppression. Plus, they had not heard from God through a prophet for over 400 years. Israel was not having a good time politically or spiritually. See, if I were an Israelite uh, waiting for God's promised king to arrive, I probably would have been looking forward to uh, someone coming in to overthrow the Roman government and to reinstate Jerusalem as the holy capital city of the world. But if I were an Israelite, I would have been sorely disappointed because that's not what Jesus came to do. The passage actually shows us what Jesus uh, came to do, if we look carefully. So firstly, notice that Jesus doesn't ride into Jerusalem on a war horse with a royal entourage and a grand army. Uh, He comes on a little donkey uh, without a proper saddle, and he's surrounded by his ragged disciples and people from the crowd. And secondly, have a look at verse 11. Uh, His entrance into Jerusalem ends with a bit of an anticlimax, actually. So verse 11, Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Uh, can you imagine a powerful king doing this? 
Uh, imagine, uh, take for example, um, the Roman emperor of Jesus' time, Tiberius, right? Let's say Tiberius is coming to take over a city. Uh, he, he rides in, uh, he's wearing his crown with royal attire, uh, he's on his war horse, or, or maybe he's being pulled in a carriage, he's got his, um, his royal guard, a gigantic army with him, he storms into the city to take over it, right? He gets to the main building of the city, and just as he's about to take it over, he, um, he, he looks at his proverbial watch and goes, oh, oh no, uh, it's, it's past my bedtime. Uh, uh, I probably should head out, guys, sorry, I'll come back tomorrow. Like, nobody does that, right? He just wouldn't do that. Uh, but that's exactly what Jesus does here. Because Jesus is not the king that people expect. And he's not here to do what people expect. Jesus is a humble king. He is a suffering king. Here with a different purpose. He is the king who came to save his people, not from Roman rule and oppression, but to save the world from sin and death. And he saves not by the power of a large army, but by the power of his death on a cross. Uh, spoiler alert, uh, in less than a week from this story, we'll see that Jesus is arrested. He's found guilty of nothing. But because people shout for him to be crucified, he is led away and killed on a Roman cross. But as he died on the cross, Jesus, the Son of God, God the Son himself, took away our sin and put it on himself. He took on himself the punishment uh, from God that all of our sin deserves. Jesus died so that if we trust in him, we don't have to. But that's not all. Mark ends with Jesus' tomb found empty. Other accounts clearly indicate that Jesus came back to life from the dead. Jesus overcame death so that if we follow him, we can look forward to living in his wonderful kingdom, free from death and suffering for all eternity. That's the kind of king that Jesus is. Jesus is the suffering king who came to save his people by dying for them. And his kingdom is even better than what the Israelites were expecting. A kingdom not free from just Roman rule, but free from sin and death and suffering. So who do you think Jesus is? If you don't yet follow Jesus, maybe you think uh, he's just a good moral teacher, uh, some kind of enlightened guru. Maybe you think he was crazy. Or maybe you're not even convinced that he existed at all. If that's you, I challenge you to read Mark. We have here preserved in the pages of history accounts of the life of Jesus. Read Mark and see for yourself who Jesus claimed to be and what he did. I cannot stress how important that is. And, no, and not only is it important, it's also urgent. If you haven't explored who Jesus is, the time to do it is now. In my other job outside of church uh, as a GP, I often have the job of telling people uh, important things they need to hear for their health. For example, it might be to exercise more or, or to eat less sugar or, or to start taking a, a new medication. Uh, but occasionally, I have to tell people something that's not only important but also urgent. Uh, say somebody comes in to my room uh, clutching their chest, short of breath, panting, sweating. They're in severe pain. I have to tell that person to go to hospital straight away, preferably by an ambulance, because he could be having a heart attack, and that needs to be dealt with straight away. See, dealing with chest pain is both important, really important, and it's urgent. And in the same way, figuring out who Jesus is is both immensely important and it's urgent. It's important because your eternity is at stake. 
In fact, there couldn't be anything else more important than that. And it's urgent because none of us knows how long we have left here on this earth. I feel like every day we hear about another tragedy of somebody uh, young who, who dies, uh, or there's another, there's another shooting or, or some kind of natural disaster. Uh, none of us knows when it's going to be our turn. We kid ourselves if we think we're in control of when we die. No, we urgently need to figure out if Jesus is legit, if we haven't already. So read the book of Mark. Do it today. If you don't have a Bible, grab one from here. Uh, or, or just whip up your phone and uh, look up BibleGateway.com. It's so easy. And if reading the Bible yourself feels too daunting, grab a Christian friend and read it together. I'm sure they'd love to. But don't delay. Read Mark and see for yourself who Jesus is. But let's move on to our second point. The second point is the wrong response to Jesus, which is superficial worship. So Jesus is the king, but not everybody recognizes him as the king. Specifically, the religious leaders, the very people who were meant to recognize Jesus as king, do not. And so come with me now to verse 12. So this is the next day in the story. And, and, and this starts with an interesting encounter between Jesus and another character. This character is a fig tree. And you might have noticed this part of the story and wondered, well, what was that all about, right? Uh, well, let me point out to you the structure in the section. So there's three parts. The first part is verses 12 to 14. So in this part, Jesus is hungry. He sees a fig tree and leaf, but he finds no fruit, and so he curses the tree. The second part, Jesus comes to the temple courts, and he sees people doing business there, and he starts driving them out. The chief priests and the teachers of the law want to kill him. And then the third, point, uh, third part is verses 20 to 21, and that's the following morning. Uh, the fig tree that Jesus cursed is now withered from its roots. So what's happening here, actually, is that the two parts of the fig tree story are sandwiching this middle part with Jesus driving people out from the temple. You see, the bread of the sandwich points to the filling, which is the part in the middle. The fig tree is symbolic of what's going on in the middle here. So let's start with the middle and unpack this, right? So Jesus, he enters Jerusalem again, and this time he lets loose, right? He enters the temple courts, and he starts driving out the merchants. He goes around flipping tables, and he basically disrupts the business going on there. Uh, why does Jesus do this? Uh, isn't the temple where people are meant to worship God? Well, have a look at verse 17. Jesus says, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Jesus disrupts the activity in the temple because it's a far cry from what the temple is meant to be. The Old Testament envisioned the temple to be the center point of the worship of God. And not just for God's people, but for everybody, for all nations. People from other nations would come to the temple to worship God, to pray, and to serve him. But in Jesus' day, this was virtually non-existent. In fact, Gentiles, or non-Jews, were segregated from temple worship. They could only go as far as one of the outer courts, and then not any further. You had to be a Jew to go any further. Rather than welcome the nations in to worship God, the religious leaders of Israel had monopolized the temple and put up keep-out signs for everybody else. But not only that, Jesus criticizes the religious leaders for making the temple into a den of robbers. Now, I used to think that Jesus was referring to all the business uh, that was going on and he was condemning it for being ungodly, but I don't think that's what he actually means. Uh, you see, Jesus actually quotes Jeremiah chapter 7 here. And if you read Jeremiah chapter 7... 
It's about God's people living immorally, doing evil things, and then coming back to the temple for God's protection as a safe haven. Just think about what the word den means for a minute, right? So a den is like a cave or a burrow where a wild animal lives, like a bear, right? Uh, The bear will leave its den to, to find food to go hunting, then it goes back to the den for shelter and protection. In the same way, the Israelites were going out, doing evil things, uh, cheating, lying, stealing, um, but then they'd come back to the temple for God's protection. They'd offer some sacrifices and say, hey, we're good with God, but then they just go back out and do more evil things. See, the den of robbers isn't where the robbers do their robbing, but it's where the robbers go back to hide. And what Jesus is condemning is the superficialness of the temple worship. It's become a religious facade for inwardly corrupt people. And who are the main perpetrators here? Well, it's the religious leaders. Um, Just look at how they react to Jesus. Uh, Look at verse uh, verse 18 with me. Uh, The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him. For they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. The reaction of the religious leaders to Jesus' actions is to kill him, is to want to kill him. Why? Why such a strong response? Well, let's actually look forward to their interaction uh, in verses 27 to 33 now. In this part, the religious leaders, they approach Jesus and they ask him uh, from verse 28, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you the authority to do this? Jesus replied, I will ask you one question. Answer me and I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism. Was it from heaven or of human origin? Tell me. They discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, they feared the people, for everyone held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. The religious leaders, they asked Jesus, essentially, whether his authority comes from God. And Jesus answers back with his own question. He asks them whether John the Baptist's authority came from God. And and they don't have an answer. Well, actually, they do have an answer. They just don't want to say it. Um, The truth is, they, they don't believe that either John or Jesus came from God. But they don't say it because they're afraid of the people. The simple answer to why the religious leaders hate Jesus and want to kill him is that they don't recognize Jesus as God's king. Their hearts are switched off to God. And notice the word fear. In verse 18, they fear Jesus because of the effect he was having on the people. And in verse 32, they fear the people. Jesus threatens the status quo. And so they fear losing their prestige, their power, their prosperity from being in religious leadership. And so let's come back now to the fig tree, right? The fig tree represents... Israel's spiritual state, including the religious leadership and the temple worship. Jesus sees the fig tree in leaf, but there's no fruit. It's not the right season. Israel's spiritual situation may look good on the outside, but there's no real faith. She's not ready for her king. So what does Jesus do? He pronounces judgment. Judgment on those who reject him and judgment of the superficial worship. The fig tree is cursed and it withers from the root up. 
Now, it's easy for us to see Israel's corruption in this passage. But if we call ourselves Christians, I think we have to look hard at our own hearts here. Are we, like the religious leaders of Jesus' time, guilty of superficial worship? Do we profess to follow Jesus and and maybe even do things that make us look holy, but have hearts that are switched off to God? If you're not sure, let me ask you this. Are you afraid of being a Christian? As a follower of Jesus, do you fear losing something, whether it be your reputation or your comfort or your friends and family or maybe it's money? If the answer for you there is yes, then Jesus is warning you that you could be in the same danger as the religious leaders of Jesus' time. Jesus is warning you that even though you may say and do Christian things, we might actually be valuing things above Jesus. And that when Jesus himself comes again, we might not recognize him for who he really is, as God's king over everything and everyone who deserves our undivided worship. What is it that you're afraid to lose? If we are serious about following Jesus, then we have to weigh up that thing, whether it's reputation or money or friends and family, whatever it is, against Jesus himself. Is Jesus worth more to you? Jesus, through whom everything was created, the source of all good things, including those other things that we have. Jesus, the suffering king, who gave up everything for us, dying for our sins. Jesus, who earned for us an eternal inheritance in heaven that will never perish or spoil or fade. What's worth more to you? Um, We recently bought uh, a new laptop for Anna to use for her work. Uh, Her old laptop um, is... uh, basically a brick, and it works about as good as a brick. Um, it's, it's old, it's, it's clunky, it's slow, it's battery is basically shot. Um, but this new laptop that we bought on her, it, it's great. It, it's fast, it's zippy, it, it's got a great battery life. Uh, it even sort of folds out and it's got a touch screen, right? It's superior in every single way. But what if Anna insisted on using her old laptop? What if she just really wanted to use her old laptop? It just wouldn't make sense, right? It just wouldn't make sense. She has something that is way better that's already been bought for her. In the same way, we have Jesus, who is way better than everything else in this world. Something way better. And, it's, and he's already bought for us our salvation and eternal joy. Don't get me wrong. Uh, friends, family, material blessings, those, those are all good things. And, and we ought to be thankful to God for those things. But it would be, we would be so foolish if we take those things and put them in a higher place than God in our hearts. It would be so foolish if those things stop us from recognizing Jesus as king. We would be missing out on the way better thing, which is eternal life. What are you afraid of losing? Search your heart, and and when you found it, thank God for it, but bring it before him. Bring it before the cross where Jesus' love shines the brightest and pray that God would change your heart to love Jesus more and do that day after day. And then confess it to a brother or sister. Our hearts can silently fester if we hide our struggles. Let your brothers and sisters encourage you. Let them keep you accountable in this way and pray for you. Lean on God's family to help you here. But now let's move on to our last point, which is the right response to Jesus and that is genuine faith. Uh, let's read verse 21 again uh, from here. Uh, Jesus, uh, sorry, Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly I tell you, 
If anyone says to this mountain, go, throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you've received it, and it will be yours. Now it's easy to read verses 21 and 22, and think that Jesus cursed the fig tree to demonstrate how powerful prayer can be. Um, But I don't actually think that's what the connection is here between those verses. I think the connection is in what the fig tree represents. Remember, we said that the fig tree represents Israel's spiritual condition. It didn't have fruit, so it was cursed, and it withered. I think Jesus is making a contrast here. He's saying Israel and its religious leaders don't have real faith, and they will be judged. But you, on the other hand, you go and have faith in God. And then he goes on to describe what faith looks like. Genuine faith looks like bold and expectant prayer and forgiveness. So firstly, prayer. Uh, What Jesus says here about prayer, if I'm being honest, makes me feel uncomfortable. Um, When I read a passage like this, I immediately have my guard up. Um, My protective instincts kick in. I go, how can I explain away this passage so Jesus' promise isn't quite as strong as it sounds? Because if I take Jesus at his word, it sounds like that I can perform miracles, right? If I believe hard enough, I can throw this mountain into the ocean. If I believe hard enough, I can stop inflation. If I believe hard enough, I can make my kids obey me, right? And we know we can't because we've tried doing these things and it didn't work. So to protect ourselves, we, and so protect ourselves and our flimsy trust in God's word, we come up with whatever we can to explain those things away. Now, to be clear, I don't think this is what Jesus is saying. Uh, In fact, thinking of prayer in that way can be quite dangerous because it puts a pressure on us to believe hard enough. And if that thing doesn't happen, well, then that's our fault. It's my fault. I don't have enough faith. And that's going to lead us into spirals of self-doubt and ultimately doubt in God. No, what Jesus is saying here is to have faith in God. It's not about me and how much faith I have. It's about God and how powerful God is. If God is all-powerful, then anything is possible for him. And genuine faith trusts that God can do anything and that he loves us immeasurably and that those two truths together mean that we can pray boldly and expect him to answer. The second thing is forgiveness. If you read verse 25 with me. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them, so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Genuine faith understands that our relationship with God is not based on our merit, but on His grace. We can stand before God in prayer because He sent Jesus, His suffering King, to die for our sins, making us His children again. If we do not forgive others, we show that our faith is not genuine. Because if we genuinely know and love and trust God, we will forgive others because we've been shown amazing grace in being forgiven first. There's heaps that we can talk about here, but I think the main challenge for us here is about prayer. How big and bold are your prayers? Do you expect God to answer your prayers? Or or do you pray just because you know it's the right thing to do? I think Jesus speaks the way he does about prayer to enlarge our view of God's power and of prayer. This is God we're talking about. Uh, Do you believe that God is all-powerful? Yes? Well, great. Uh, Do you believe that God loves you? Yes? Great. Then pray. 
we have this amazing privilege, won by Jesus, to talk to God intimately and personally. So let's do it. Let's pray day in and day out about everything in our lives, big and small. Um, I've just finished reading a book called A Praying Life by Paul Miller. It's part of um, my internship readings. Um, And in it, he talks about praying like a child. Um, There's a few things about the way children ask uh, things from their parents, right? Um, I'll I'll say three things. First, um, children don't have a filter. They just say what's on their mind. Um, Secondly, children, uh, little children, trust that their parents can do anything. And thirdly, if there's something they really want, they're going to ask about it over and over again. Have you learned to pray like a child? Coming to God with whatever is on your mind, fully trusting in him to do anything and asking for it persistently. Jesus wants us to pray like this because it shows our trust and dependence on God like little children to our Heavenly Father. And that's what genuine faith looks like. Is that how you pray to God? If not, then I challenge that either your view of God's power is too little or your view of God's love is too little. Come back to the cross to see God's love and his power together in perfect display and learn to pray again like a child, boldly, expectantly, and persistently. But let me wrap up. We've seen today who Jesus is, God's suffering king. We've seen the wrong response to Jesus, which is superficial worship. And we've seen the right response to Jesus, which is genuine faith expressed in forgiveness and in prayer. Do you recognize Jesus as God's king and do you trust in him? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for Jesus, your suffering king who died on the cross for us uh, to bring us back to you as little children. May we have real faith. May we respond to Jesus rightly and recognize him as your king. Help us to love you and to trust in you. Amen.